Hi guys, uh, thank you for joining us for our podcast. Uh, my name is Mitro Belash. I'm a co-founder and chief business development at Osovul. And today uh, I'm going to have a, I believe, very interesting conversation with uh, Matt Drayden. He is ex Twitter program lead for um, response to the uh, communication crisis, to the misinformation, disinformation, and he was in charge of uh, civil integrity and elections in Twitter. So um, today, I think we're going to focus our conversation. Obviously, there's always in trust and safety uh, and on information threats, but especially in the context of elections, as our guest has a huge experience with this. So, Matt, please feel free to introduce, introduce yourself, share some details about your experience, uh, just to frame a context for our um, listeners. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Dimitro. Um, so as you mentioned, I spent about three years at Twitter. I was a program manager on the trust and safety team, supporting elections, crisis response, and uh, misinformation uh, across a number of different policies and product areas. Um, prior to that, I, have, I spent about seven years with the UN uh, as an information officer. And then most recently, I've been consulting with different civil society and government organizations focused on strengthening resilience to information threats. Amazing. So I couldn't find a better person to talk about elections next year um, because elections are going to be all over the place in states, in Europe, um, I think in India as well, in many, many countries. So uh, the question is um, that I have, and I maybe want to start with from that. Um, if we look on U.S. elections as a milestones, just to make the conversation easier, we had elections in 2008 than 2012 and during this year according to my feeling uh, there was kind of an excitement about new technologies social media and so on uh it was the kind of the, the very beginning of of uh, integration between politics elections and and tech and then in 2012 i think the first concerns raised 2016 was pretty concerning and then now we have um a new approach collections in um, uh, 2024 so could you please share your um kind of opinion and view on this how the threat landscape was changing from 2008 or 12 whatever you want to start till today so give us some perspective on that yeah absolutely i think i think the way you've framed it is absolutely right. Um, a lot of excitement around these new technologies. And I, I really see 2016 as this year of reckoning in terms of the risks that um, that can be pres presented to elections through um, online discourse. And um, of course, what we saw coming out of foreign influence operations targeting the US. Um, and, and then of course, just the uh, ever-present uh, domestic Myths and disinformation that was very prevalent in that election. The use of user data um, to to develop and target these information campaigns. Um, so obviously, coming out of 2016, a lot of reckoning in the industry, a lot of regulatory questions um, about how technology is is impacting elections. I'm looking specifically at at social media, and uh, I think going. From there, um, there, there has there was this moment of, of realization and uh, significant investment in making improvements and addressing a lot of these gaps that had uh, that had emerged. So, from 2016 to 2020, you saw platforms building up their trust and safety teams, building up their elections programs, and uh, developing policies and products to address these uh, these potential risks in, in the information space. And you know, this was a really positive development in a lot of ways. There was a great deal of expertise um, that came into the companies, uh, a lot of support for them. And I think you really saw the results, um, the positive results of that investment in 2020. Now, obviously, 2020 was not uh, a perfect election year by any means. Uh, we, we saw the, the discourse around election fraud and stolen election that, that led to the events of January 6th. But from certainly, I think, the perspective of foreign influence and the, and the impact of that influence and reach, 
and the overall preparedness of, of the platforms, there was a significant improvement between 2016 and, and 2020 in my view. Now, going into 2024, as you mentioned, this very challenging election year. Um, you, you mentioned India, the US, of course. Uh, I'm thinking also about Taiwan, Mexico, Egypt. I think there are 40 plus major elections in, in 2024. This is going to be very challenging. And it's happening in this moment where platforms are now pulling back from those same invest investments they made uh, after 2016. Um, I think a, a big turning point there was the the acquisition of Twitter and the uh, significant cuts that Elon Musk made to that company specifically, I mean, across the company, but but certainly they impacted trust and safety teams and the industry took note. And uh, some, some industry leaders have actually explicitly cited Musk's decision to uh, lay off staff as inspiring their own decisions. Um, numerous companies have a big, big cuts uh, in the past year, and those have impacted elections teams, impacted trust and safety teams. And that that's really concerning to me. Um, and I think that you know, we're going to see a lot of challenges to support all of these elections. And I think about from my time at Twitter, what 2022 looked like with both the Brazilian presidential election and the US midterms coming around the same time. And this was at the height of capacity for election staffing at Twitter, obviously in the backdrop of a lot of other things going on in terms of the acquisition, but still a really robust programs with a lot of lessons learned from, from 2020 and 2016. And it was a struggle to support those two elections simultaneously. The, the teams were stretched. And so I can only imagine with less people and more elections and an even more polarized society, I think more, you look at some of the threat, the threat actors, Russia obviously I think is going to be less constrained by the threat of sanctions, by other threats because um, you know, they've already uh, done so much and, um, you're seeing more activity from China. Meta just released a threat report um, with their largest ever, I believe, takedown of uh, Chinese uh, fake accounts. Um, and and I think you're just facing this kind of perfect storm of, of lack, lack of capacity, very, um, very motivated threat actors, and um, just so many elections across the world to deal with. It's, it's going to be a challenging year. What kind of, if you talk about uh, threats that are typically new, like what kind of new types of threat may come according to your experience, uh, your vision uh, next year? Something that we haven't seen before, but it's likely to be in place in 2024. Yeah, I mean, from my understanding, and I'm you know, not as in the weeds as an, an expert on, on some of these issues, particularly on the technical side as, as, as some folks, and, and I think you and your team are, but from my perspective, um, you know, I certainly see the, there has been a lot of time to learn and refine in terms of information uh, tactics um, from some of these threat actors I mentioned, um, you know, seeing what's worked in the past and what hasn't, um, obviously some new technologies are very much top of mind, although, and I, I think we'll uh, be able to talk about this in more detail later, but we look at things like generative AI and, and other technologies. And I, I think they certainly introduce some new variables, but it's difficult to say what the real, you know, impact of those will be, you know, perhaps just making some of the traditional tactics easier and, and faster to carry out. Um, and, and perhaps introducing some, some total unknowns too. Um, but so I, I think about, you know, just these, these actors who have had a chance to really learn and improve their, their methods. And, you know, again, doing so in a landscape where the platforms are less prepared. And then there's this additional challenge that I see of the politicization of counter mis and disinformation work and this is in the us but i see other parts of the world taking note of this trend as well and exploiting it where we've seen the congressional hearings um, targeting social media platforms for their relationships with 
law enforcement, for example, or other parts of government, targeting them for their relationships with academic institutions or civil society organizations that are researching um, mis- and disinformation. And these tools were really effective in uh, 2020. There was a uh, program that Twitter was part of and other platforms called the Election Integrity Partnership. And this brought together platforms and uh, academic institutions to share uh, tips and and escalations for content. Uh, The decisions on what to action were completely left with the platforms themselves. It was a very, um, you know, well well organized and well uh, sealed off operation, but it was a really important way to share information. And that relationship and then that kind of um, forum for information sharing and um, coordination, uh, those are under attack. And I think that's going to make it a lot harder to address these threats when you've got everyone in silos, kind of afraid to talk to each other. There's still possibilities to talk when it comes to to foreign influence. Um, But, you know, we see that a lot of the, the significant threats to to you know the the integrity of the information environment to to discourse come from domestic sources they come from unclear sources uh, and being able to have coordination and collaboration um, between government and civil society and the platforms I think is really crucial none of these entities can address these issues on their own. So creating more roadblocks for that kind of collaboration is just going to make it harder to address the threats that exist and uh, the threats that may emerge again through these new technologies or through new actors that that we're going to see in the coming year. Yeah, sounds quite uh, threatening to be frank, right? And I think that actually a lot of people, especially out of trust and safety um, environment, uh, which is work maybe even in, in, in or even in our area, uh, they actually don't understand why we are in a perfect storm because like, okay, they see some trust and safety team um, uh, challenges, right? And they see that less people are working there in the companies, but they not always understand what people were doing there because it's usually the work that's happening on the background. So just to like explain to people who are not into the topic, could you please share an example of your workflow, what what you and your team actually did, let's say in 2022, in the context of uh, midterm elections or earlier. So how how your uh, day of work was looking like and uh, what did you practically do to protect elections in, in the US? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it's something that I've encountered in a lot of my conversations with stakeholders from outside of tech working recently with with government or with um, with civil society actors, both in the US and, and uh, in Ukraine and, and elsewhere in the world. And I think there's a big, what I've been referring to as the kind of understanding gap uh, between these actors. And, and, and that flows both ways, but particularly when it comes to, and, and this is the, again, the, the I think uh, the onus is on the, tech industry to peel back a lot of this, but there's just a lot of uh, mystery and a lot of questions around how trust and safety and, and uh, you know, policy enforcement operations work, how policies are developed, um, understanding the, the those mechanisms and processes and all of the teams that are part of, um, part of making that happen. So, you know, what I've really wanted to try to do in my post Twitter time is, is really, um, shed some light on that and mm-hmm. i i think that it's there, there's there's just so many misconceptions about how these things work that i think if we can get more on the same page uh it'll really allow for more effective collaboration you know you when you have a civil society group for example that can raise an escalation to the tech uh, to a tech partner and and have it really be actionable and have the elements it needs. But but to answer your your question about the kind of day to day, yeah yeah let's let's debunk this information about trust and safety teams in, in big tech. So what do you actually do like without mystification? Yes, exactly, exactly. You know, and I, I I gave a talk not too long ago where I presented a list of misconceptions around uh-huh. trust and safety and and how 
you know, policies are developed and enforced. And, and I think there's this view that there's this, that platforms have all of the data and they have this omnipotent view of everything happening and, um, you know, can dig in deep and it's, you know, platforms, even the biggest platforms and Twitter was, was definitely the, either the biggest of the small platforms or the smallest of the big platforms, um, but still had you know, 5,000 people uh, or, or more, uh, significantly more, I think, by the time I left. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was just, there's, there's so much scale to deal with when it comes to content on a social media platform. I think the statistic that was, shared a lot this might be a bit out of date um but from say the mid 2000s was 500 million tweets a day and you know when you think about in in, in globally in all languages and that scale is just mind-boggling so you need this combination and and this is you know how these trust and safety operations uh took place you, you need to have policies that are robust and and uh informed enough to to meet the needs of a global audience that can be consistently enforceable and transparently enforceable so the policy teams who are developing those those platform rules and con consistently refining them and then you need to be able to detect um you know violations of those policies at scale and either you know that can come from user reporting it can come from ML models, it can come from uh, targeted sweeps. There's all kinds of different ways uh, that, that um, team, trust and safety teams and, and their operations partners can detect on that uh, content. And then you have enforcement where um, you can have a suite of different actions to uh, address that, that uh, violative content, you know, whether it's demoting it, you know, making it less visible, depending on the severity of the harm, removing it entirely, uh, labeling it, you know, making users aware of some misinformation, for example. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a, just so many different uh, tools and, and and methods at the disposal of these teams so again to, to sorry to get back to your original question um thinking about a day in the life so in 2022 leading up to the midterm elections um and then at the same time supporting the brazil elections uh, we had teams that were first the main focus in the lead up to that was just trying to anticipate all of the threat scenarios. And we ran a number of tabletop exercises, red teams, just trying to put our minds to the test as bad actors and from our past experience and try to anticipate what could go wrong, what could put our processes, our policies and, and our people uh, to the test and and what needs to be in place to uh, to mitigate that risk and prioritizing those mitigations, you know, based on severity, based on immediacy, um, and really trying to work out a a plan and a formula, um, ensuring that you're sharing information across all of the teams that need it. So a big part of of my role was just ensuring that the right people were in the room and getting the updates they need and you know, elections or other kinds of critical events like crises, they really are very far reaching in a company. So you needed to know what's, you know, this engineering team that owns this surface, for example, um, the, the trends uh, on, on Twitter, for example, um, you know, do they have the mitigations in place to prevent misinformation from trending? Or, you know, we're seeing um, on on uh, DMs, a, a kind of uh, problematic behavior is that team looped in, or um, you know, there's so many different facets where where you need to involve uh, different parts of the company. So that was a big focus of my day to day was just ensuring that those stakeholders were informed and had actionable information on what was happening on the platform and and off in in the world, um, and then working, you know, closely with um, with engineers and other detection teams to build models that that were accurately detecting the problematic content, you know, looking for the keywords, uh, doing that research and having that finger on the pulse, 
um, and ensuring that there were systems in place to review um, the, the content that was escalated and, and captured in, in those detection sweeps. So just a, a, you know, a really, um, a really multifaceted, multi-stakeholder operation day to day. And, uh, you know, sometimes I would be looking at, at content directly and, and helping teams make a decision as to whether it's uh, policy violating or, you know, helping, um, to arrange a, a uh, meeting with with uh, a partner, or um, you know, looking at our policies and ensuring that they're capturing and, and addressing the threats. So, just a lot of different moving parts that would go into the day to day of an election response. Um, uh, you know, often you refer to the policy because policy is a, is a starting point. It's the rules that is defined according to which you operate, and. Uh, from time to time, uh, different, uh, if we talk about in the context of election, politicians blame platforms that the policy is unfair to them, to the either like uh, more, some say that they're unfair to the more right wing, others to the more left wing. So what's your vision of this? Are policies typically in the industry kind of try to be uh, fair for everybody or platforms, they have their own like, uh, vision and they, they 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 take their own like a political stance somewhere because they they just must do this so what's your vision on this yeah of course that has absolutely been a big subject of debate and and i can just speak to my experience which is that we during my time at twitter uh, tried to develop policies in a as fair and transparent way as possible with the focus on addressing harms that we saw to the democratic process. And you know, we looked at a spectrum of harms on that scale that could impact the you know, integrity of, of an election or uh, I think very critically, people's right to participate in, in, in an election. So the most severe harms on that spectrum were related to disenfranchisement, you know, telling someone that the election is on Tuesday when it's really on Wednesday, um, you know, and, and maybe in, by doing so, uh, resulting in them not being able to vote because you've given them bad information. That mm -hmm. was one of the, you know, the most severe harm, uh, policy harm in, in for an election that, um, that, that we saw and, um, you know, would remove that content and, and, and action that, um, you know, very, very uh, severely. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, you have the claims that a democratic process was rigged, or an election was rigged, or, um, you know, these broader claims. And, you know, it was very tricky at times to, to balance that because in some in, in some contexts, in, 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 in some uh, countries, uh, there, there is significant fraud in elections and you know, elections can be rigged. I mean, we look, for example, um, Belarus. I mean, someone claiming uh, on, on Twitter that the Belarusian election was rigged, well, I think they, they have a very legitimate point and uh, would not want to act, you know, the policy it would not be in the spirit of the policy uh, to to action that content. So it you know, needed an understanding of the broad consensus from from experts on you know the democratic integrity of, of a given election, and you know needed to have, be constantly tuning that and understanding and, and speaking with outside experts. And I, I think again, from my experience, I think Twitter. Uh, navigated that well in, in in the time I was there, and I think there were a number of people of integrity who really wanted to implement these policies, agnostic of politics, of of uh, you know of, of any ideology, but just ensuring that people were able to fairly uh, participate in in an election and uh, and also express their view but but not do so in a way that would um, interfere with others rights to to uh, participate in a fair and free election yeah. um, you mentioned a very interesting number 
around 5,000. So around 5,000 people like was working on the feature when, when you back there. And it's quite a, quite a small group of people but the impact is really huge. Like, you, if you if if your work impacts elections in one or another way, like because you still use social networks to share information, right? It can change the whole uh, the the, cor the whole course of history, right? And I'm I'm wondering about like the spirit in the company uh, and overall in the industry, as you see. If you will, I don't know, like uh, just pick a random engineer or a random tech leader uh, or uh, a business person uh, from the team. Uh, do they actually realize the, the the power to which they are like on which they are working, or it wasn't like that visible, that understandable, and you need to explain it? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I think the people I worked with certainly appreciated the responsibility that had been placed on them, and and took that very seriously. Um, you know, it was interesting coming into Twitter. I had and had a career out, outside of, of tech, outside of the private sector uh, with the UN. And I was expecting, based on, on what I had heard and read, that the engineers and the product people would be very resistant to trust and safety concerns, to, to the issues raised by a team like mine. And it was a really pleasant surprise to find that it was quite the opposite. Um, in some cases, in fact, we had engineers consumer engineers not focused on trust and safety or elections and crises who felt more passionately about these issues about um, integrity about user safety uh, and and we would sometimes be you know, facing a lot of pressure from them uh, to to make more changes and move more rapidly and and I thought that was great there was a sense of mission a sense uh, as you said of the importance of the platform and I, I felt like we had very strong leadership uh, within my team and within the, the broader um, org under which Trust and Safety sat, uh, which, which included the public policy team and legal teams. Um, there, there was a, a, a woman who led that org named Vijay Gade, who really, um, I think, set a, a very strong tone of, of um, you know, respecting this responsibility that the platform has and ensuring that uh, we lived up and, and met the expectations of, of users to you know, maintain a, a safe and, and uh, high integrity experience. Um, and yeah, it, it was it was very, uh, you know, certainly in the heat of those those moments, I, I think particularly about the 2020 election or responding to uh, the full scale invasion of Ukraine, uh, where things were moving very fast or there was enormous pressure from internal uh, partners from external actors and you know my team certainly felt like we you know, had a, a great responsibility and and needed to you know we couldn't walk away this was something very important that we needed to uh, needed to apply all of our knowledge and 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 uh, you know, efforts to support um, because it, it had very real impacts on, on people's lives. And that's um, uh, moving us to my next question regarding the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the current Russian-Ukrainian war. So you were at a place when, in, in Twitter, when it started. So could you recollect your, your, your first day when the invasion started? What was happening in the, in the Twitter's office when Russia invaded Ukraine? Yes, I, I do remember that day very well. Um, so I think like the rest of the world, um, you know, we had been watching and, and waiting to see what the Russian intentions would be. There had been the buildups at the border in the past that had uh, kind of diffused. And, and uh, I think there was there was hope that this wouldn't result in, in uh, what it did result in. Um, but when the reports you know, first broke that, uh, that the invasion was indeed happening, um, I think this would have been 10 o'clock at night or so, perhaps in, in, uh, in California. Um, so I was at home and my team was at home, but um, you know, we, we uh, knew that this was 
you know, very significant event and, and uh, needed to act. And we were in a very uh, fortunate position in terms, at least of, of response, because several months prior to that, a new process had been put in place that I was able to help develop and, and launch. And um, for a long time before this, Twitter didn't really have a cohesive crisis response program. Um, certainly the platform had dealt with a number of crises in the past and was, was uh, you know, very, very adept and had a strong playbook for more acute crises. So unfortunately, what's sadly very common, say a mass shooting uh, incident or um, some, some kind of, kind of short-lived event, the, the platform had also dealt with more complex uh, armed conflicts or civil unrest or you know, prolonged um, crises. Uh, in particular, thinking about the, the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan or the Tigray War in Ethiopia were both examples of, of crises. But we really hadn't, in the way that we did for elections, codified a, a clear playbook and process for how to respond to these. And recognizing that need, um, I worked with uh, a number of different people within the company to build that process and playbook. And basically, we put in place a, a plan for how do we detect and, and get early warning that something significant may be happening somewhere in the world, both looking at the signals on platform and, and, and the signals off platform. Um, how do we have a menu or a, a mapping of all of the different things that we can do, the, the policy interventions, the product interventions, um, all the different levers that we could pull to respond and be able to assess a crisis you know, based on different risk types and say, okay, for this, we need to apply this mitigation, this mitigation, and this mitigation, and here are the people who need to be looped in. And so we built out that plan, and as coincidence would have it, that was launched right in January 2022. So we had this, this quite new process in place, and as... Um, as the troop buildup was was occurring in December and January uh, of that year, we had activated this process and began uh, preparing for the potential of, of the full-scale invasion. So getting the teams together that needed to meet, starting to do the pre-planning and, and pre-production on some of the, the interventions that we would put in place. And um, when, in, in on February 24th, the... Um, invasion did happen, um, we were able to quickly act in a, in a way that we just hadn't been able to in the past and just basically put the green light on these interventions. So one, one example uh, in particular, we have this, um, we had this product intervention where uh, to ensure that users who are in a crisis situation can have quick access to the tools they need that might help them protect their safety or their privacy. So say for example, that you've been an activist and you've been posting tweets um, critical of the government and now you know, the, um, there's an invasion of your town, you wanna quickly be able to remove all your tweets or disable your account or make your account private. And you know, knowing how to do that can can um, can be a challenge. So we we put a pop up that appeared for every user in Ukraine and had it translated into Ukrainian uh, to lead users to those resources. Um, a bunch of different tools and and um, and, help, and articles for for um, protecting your account and your privacy and your safety. And in the past, that had taken about two weeks to translate and get all the, the products and engineering requirements in place and get that launched. And for Ukraine, because we were able to do so much of that in anticipation and beforehand, it only took a couple of hours to get that live on February 24th. So we were moving very rapidly in a way that we hadn't in the past. Mm -hmm. And you know, I was proud of that and, and um, you know, that we were able to, to really respond um, Quickly. Uh, often when people think that the platforms take some actions and they do interventions, typically they think about like uh, mainly three categories of actions. 
One is like banning accounts. Second is um, the promoting content and banning the content itself. So maybe we can talk about like these three stuff that everybody is interested in. So regarding um, uh, banning some accounts, did Twitter have a policy to interact and ban um, uh, some accounts uh, from the platform? And what was the policy to do this in the context of Russian-Ukrainian war? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in in the context of of the war, there until a, a specific point uh, several months later, when a new policy specifically was launched around crisis related misinformation, which I can talk about a bit. Um, the you know there were new no new policies introduced, so it was just infor consistent enforcement of the policies that were already in place and the policies that tended to be impacted during the the war or or that you know coming up frequently were around um hate speech around incitement to violence um looking at denial of violent events these were all um safety policies where say you could have a a russian government actor for example denying that uh an airstrike had had occurred in the civilian territory, and and that uh, could be violative of of one of those policies. Um, policies around coordinated manipulation, so you know those those fake account networks and attempts to manipulate um, through through those kind of activities, which are content agnostic. If you're using fake accounts to boost a message or um, you know, to manipulate the platform in some way. It doesn't matter what you're saying. You could you could be saying nothing, um, but it's it's the behavior that is violative. Um, so those would be instances certainly where an account uh, would have you know, those accounts would be removed entirely. In the case of um, some of the the content violations I mentioned around speech, you know, hate speech, um, it depends. It could be a removal of that tweet and a strike against the account, or for repeat offenders, it, it could well be uh, a removal of, of the account itself over time, a banning of the account. And of course, I'm speaking to, uh, just just uh, to be clear, to Twitter 1.0. So I can't speak to Twitter today or X or their policies, but um, but at the time, these, these were the policies that were in place. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think those those were mainly the, the types of, of content that presented challenges. Our state media policy was also uh, very significant during this time. Um, there were uh, regulations in, in the EU, uh, most most significantly around uh, removing those accounts entirely, which which Twitter complied with. Um, in in other cases, our um, our policy would ensure that those accounts were labeled and that they were de-amplified so they weren't as easily searchable or they, and are recommended by any of Twitter systems. Um, and we extended that to Russian government accounts uh, later as well. So those would not be recommendable and they would be clearly labeled. Um, and I'm thinking of, of any other accounts that are other policies that, that may have been relevant uh, may, may I ask you about 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 the policy? I think yeah. like actually this this um, discussion happened even before the the acquisition of Twitter. Some like quite a lot of Ukrainian uh, Twitter community they felt that Twitter was not a friendly platform to them because they they were saying that uh, when they're sharing um, photos uh, with the war crimes or sharing the information about the war, they post what they promoted and they get less reach. Uh, and uh, um, I, I think the peak of the discussion was some like kind of screenshot that was proving that there's a specific category for Ukrainian war-related content. So um, uh, I'm not sure whether you were still there when this was happening. So if you can give some light on this, it would be really interesting uh, like was really Ukrainian related content from Ukrainians they promoted and if it was why and was there actual a specific category for Ukrainian related uh, war related content? Sure. Um, you know, I can speak broadly to how some of these systems work and, and what might be um, happening here. It's, it's difficult to comment on any particular mm -hmm. case, but um, you know, I, I, I think that 
often you know, there are numerous reasons why a piece of content or an account may you know have a diminished reach and um, you know these these can range really widely it could be just a a signal that accurately or or not and and of course this is this is the unfortunate reality that you know again operating at the scale of 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 twitter of, of, a, of a large social media platform um these detection systems are not perfect uh and you know a seemingly benign change like changing your some aspect of your account you know profile or or maybe um the location where you're tweeting from or any any number of things might set off a detection uh lever that says oh maybe this account is engaged in something um I'm trying to spam or is inauthentic or and and so it's 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 hard to say you know what exactly can you know did cause uh an, an account to be not recommended or be deamplified. And the other thing I would caution against too is is often people are um, you coming becoming aware of this issue through these third party tools. And you know, I'm not to say that you know, they're totally inaccurate, but you know, these can really vary widely in quality, and they just don't have the ability to see inside Twitter systems. Um, you know, using using API access, uh, and so there, there we often would find that something would get escalated. Oh, you know, I used this thing online. I searched my account. It says I'm shadow banned. No, that's that just wasn't the case on our internal systems. You know, they they weren't using a very sophisticated model to guess, or they would use a lot of assumptions, things like mm -hmm. that. And, uh, you know, that was always something to be aware of. Um, now and again, yeah, but 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 you did raise an important point. I think about a very real challenge around issues like sensitive content in the in the context of uh, crisis. So you know, showing a photo uh, or a video of the aftermath of an airstrike or or uh, combat or and you know these this this kind of media is is very crucial in the context of of a war toward capturing evidence of war crimes and spreading awareness and you know that is is uh you know i think something was broadly agreed that that is very important content to capture but at the same time there were filters in place to ensure that if users did not want to see sensitive content they they wouldn't wouldn't see it it would have a you know a blur or not be recommended so balancing between you know people who perhaps did not want to be confronted with something graphic or violent and at the same time you know capturing and spreading that and it was it was a constant balance and, and certainly um i think that the policy teams and enforcement teams would would always try to provide the necessary context of you know in in the context the broader context surrounding this case you know it is newsworthy and in the public interest to maintain whereas you know something that's gratuitous or or unnecessary would not be and it, it was just a, you know this is one of the really core challenges of content moderation and and the trust mm -hmm. and safety field is um you know knowing where to draw that line and twitter sometimes got it right sometimes got it wrong i think all the platforms have struggled with this but it certainly was a constant topic of conversation uh within the company how to best strike that balance um, you mentioned the Ukraine war uh, classifier that that had been mm -hmm. shown in in those files that were shared the the source files. Um, I don't want to give the definitive answer here because I, I haven't really uh, dug very very closely into that case, and I'm not an engineer and, and don't spend a lot of time in code but i think my understanding of that particular case and, and having uh worked around that and i think some twitter users also came out and identified this as well that that particular instance was related to only a detection model that was not in place to filter or censor or um 
in, in, in any in any way affect the conversation around uh, discussion of the war. Uh, it was particular to the um, the live streaming audio spaces, and uh, I, I believe it was only used to detect if a space was talking about the war and if, mm -hmm. if the teams needed to review for anything that could be violative, um, just so yeah. there was protection and awareness. So if, it's, if this was a you know, Russian propaganda channel talking about the war, I'd want to know if it was Ukrainians talking about the war, then you know, obviously if, if, if there's nothing, nothing violative of the policy, it wouldn't have been um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. effective. Thank you for sharing this. I think it was like important for many people to like actually have a light on this story. Um, I have maybe one more, you know, like kind of visionary question because uh, uh, this war and many other wars often happens because of propaganda and this misinformation, you name it. The problem with the COVID uh, that we had was also largely related to the not clear understanding and explanation how to fight the virus and uh, the same story with elections that can be uh, affected by the propaganda and wrong, and, and, and wrong perception of people and, and the processes and at the same time companies pour billions of dollars into this like uh, um, efforts there's also a uh, non-government initiatives government initiatives and still like we're not doing that well with this. We still kind of have this problem. We, we will always have it, but it, it doesn't seem that we have a huge, like a um, huge improvement. So why do you think people are buying the, the stuff so easily, the, this, this misinformation? And why is it so hard to handle this? So what we're doing wrong? Yes, you know, I, I really wish I had a good answer for this, um, but I, I do have some sense of some of the questions, at least. Um, uh -huh. You know, in, in the sense that I completely agree, there's been a huge amount of investment in countering propaganda, countering myths and disinformation, malinformation, and we really don't know if it's effective and, and we there's so much that we still don't understand about the impact of these threats to the information environment about how the information environment works just what what you know really leads to change and action and you know what the true impacts are i mean uh, I, I think the 2016 election is a great example of that um, there has been so much discussion around Russian influence on the 2016 election. And we know that certainly there were efforts made, uh, strong efforts made to um, you know, change the, the population's uh, opinions and to manipulate people into going to real world uh, rallies and events and, and spread these narratives. But the extent to which it really had an impact on on the election itself and the outcome of the election itself. I think there's still a, a lot of questions. Some scholars um, have have made progress in the space and, and drawn some conclusions. And and ultimately, the conclusions that I think broadly I've seen and, and you know speaking very broadly again are that that the impact was was not so great. Um, and and it was really you know again the the domestic conversation that that drove much of this. Mm -hmm. Um, and but but yet we invest so much time in, in foreign influence and countering foreign influence and it's a very you know marketable uh, area now but but I think there's just really it, it would be valuable for all of the stakeholders in this space to step back and really try to better understand what you know the impacts are and and what the effectiveness of the mitigations are and I, and I can say within Twitter you know looking at the misinformation, products and, and policies, yeah, there was a lot of guesswork there as well. You know, where should we be focusing? Um, I don't know if you've encountered this, this product originally started um, in, in 2021, uh, Birdwatch, the community kind of driven misinformation, now mm -hmm. called Community Notes. It's, it's still around in the Muscara. So, you know, having me uh, community members of, of Twitter uh, post 
debunks of misinformation and then have a rating system to elevate those kind of like a Reddit system. Um, you know, is that more effective than when Twitter itself steps in and puts a label on something? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know, you know, the labels, we went through all kinds of variations on the design and should it be an interstitial that you have to click through, you know, should we be focused more on, positive information in the, in the debunking and pre-bunking, uh, you know, earlier in, in the process. So, you know, do you repeat the, the uh, misinformation as you're debunking it? Do you not repeat it? There's just a great deal of, of debate around this and, and I think a great deal of research still needed. So I really um, would, would advocate strongly for that. And, you know, I, I think, I also try to just take a historical perspective. Um, propaganda, misinformation, disinformation, these are nothing new. You know, these, these were elements in, in, in societies from you know, the earliest days, from, from the printing press. Uh, and and you know, I think that certainly technology can heighten these, these uh, these threats, but but ultimately they've been here for a long time, and societies have adapted around them with new technologies. Um, and I think that's a, a kind of just a helpful perspective to take as well, and not getting so caught up in the hype of say an AI or deep fakes or any one of these individual technologies where a lot of time and energy and focus get get spent on them. I think just having that that broader perspective is really valuable. And then just the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, how how can we improve and and how can we grow well you know i i think we should look in a lot of ways to ukraine ukraine's been an example for the rest of the world it has been in the face of a relentless onslaught of propaganda of disinformation and yet has still largely stood united as a as a country and as a as a people and we need to understand what elements were there to make that possible and take those lessons to bolster other democracies I think it's a very much positive note. Like, I hope that Ukraine can contribute uh, and share more about how we build this unity because it's also a phenomenon for us. How under this whole pressure of propaganda, we, we managed to stay united and uh, even like build improved critical thinking among population. So it's also need to be studied, and we'll be happy to to, to share the results to make our partnering partners stronger in front of the threats. Um, thank you, Matt, for the conversation. It was really a pleasure having it uh, with you here. And uh, considering all the challenges, we hope that elections next year uh, will still will be fair, uh, will be um, effective, and. Uh, um, uh, acceptable and uh, like just uh, uh, right with, with, with fair desires for, for US democracy, for European democracies and all over the world. Thank you for that conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.